Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther, joined as always by Aubrey. Aubrey, how are we doing today? Doing pretty well. I understand you were doing some uh, Christmas shopping and that you felt uh, besieged almost immediately. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I was. I have a lot of Christmas shopping to do because I've got 10 siblings and you have to like get a gift for every one of them. So I was trying to finish up the last half of my siblings on Wednesday, and it was probably like 8.30 p.m. and I walked into a Marshall's and immediately regretted <laughs> that decision. It was like one of those things where like you just feel like the, the stuff is coming in on you and it's encroaching in your personal space and there's like no room going down the aisles. I think I walked out with a flashlight. The checkout line was like 15 minutes long. Anyway, everything unpleasant about Christmas shopping encapsulated in my Marshall's experience. It was like the moment out of The Shining, I think, where uh, he's in the hallway and the hallway just extends all of a sudden, where it's that really trippy uh, cinema effect. Except for you, it was like potted plants and stuffed <laughs> animals. What could be more terrifying? Well, there's, the thing is, like, there's this large men's section, this enormous women's section, and then there's these two tiny little kids sections. I'm like, well, aren't most people shopping for kids? I guess. I don't know. Or maybe they're just struggling to figure out what to get their spouse or mom or dad like me. So. Well, that's true. And maybe it betrays something about adults um self-centeredness that so much of shopping is focused on adults well, rather than kids but kids them. stuff is also smaller that's true so, but there are maybe. more options for kids. yeah i don't know nothing ever fits and i just walk out again keeping my coles cash with me thank you very much <laughs> uh yeah as for my shopping we uh, were hosting this year and i went to costco thinking all right we've got nieces and nephews coming in so you know we got to get you know the fancy yogurt packs and the uh, hot cocoa with the lucky charms in it because uh, the idea and i remember as a kid when there was something purchased especially with you in mind that that is like the greatest gift you can get especially if it's not something you're unwrapping it was just bought for you because your uncle or aunt thought it was important to get it for you uh, or in my case my grandparents especially um, that was an amazing feeling so i was trying to replicate that but costco's really good at playing on that and so <laughs> everything is packaged beautifully that just speaks to like a an upper middle class sensibility of what we want to think about ourselves so it's all like quietly organic, beautifully packaged, uh, not frou-frou or ritzy, just like really solid and nice. And it makes you feel good about yourself when it's in your cart. And those buggers, I mean, they're playing the psychology game and they got me good. Uh, I went out of there with twice as much as I expected to, and I had hit only half the stuff on my list. Um, I don't think I was the only one when I was looking around. There's a lot of shocked expressions at the checkout. <laughs> where it's like you suddenly awake at the checkout. Oh crap. We uh we may have done some things here that we did not expect to do. 
I feel like my shopping, I tend to do the opposite thing where I get to check out and I'm like, wow, I have a lot less here than I should have because I've got a lot more things on my list. But then I looked at them on the shelf and was like, I don't know. <laughs> do Is I it that important? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where you can convince yourself, no, I don't really need bread this week. You know, it's like four fifty nine. I was like, ah, I just don't know. <laughs> Well, I think it's like the post, there's like a post-college mentality because for so long I was spending way more than I was making. Mm. So like you're cutting corners everywhere and I have not moved on from the post-college financial mentality at all. It's good to keep that up until you've bought a house. That's what I've found. <laughs> we, we scrimped so hard when we were in an apartment for two years. I mean... I don't know, we we're eating ramen or something, but it's like, we just need money for down payment to get out of this place. Uh, so shopping was lean, but for a short time, it's okay. For a longer term, it's kind of self-defeating and harmful. But um, Rome, we always come back to Rome, Aubrey. All leads, all, all roads lead to it, some might say, um, even if the walls don't. So what, what's your deal? I hear that on one hand, on the left, one can bless as many gays as possible now. Um, and from the right, one can also, the Pope has allowed uh, priests to bless as many um, gays as possible. But um, you say no. Yeah, so, I mean, I should prelude this by saying, and I've talked to a lot of Catholics, a lot of Catholic priests in the last week about it. Um, I wrote about it on Monday, piece went up on Tuesday, but wasn't satisfied. So I kept scrounging around and things keep changing, but it's, I should prelude it by saying it's an extremely confusing document. And it's hard, I think for many people to understand why the Pope had to say anything at all about it, mm. um, considering that I think in essence, the document changes almost nothing. Um, he, you know, extremely clearly lays out the fact that the church does not condone gay marriage in any way, shape or form. It's not been legalized. We're not saying that it's somehow sacramental, a sacramental union. It's like, it's clearly not, it's wrong for people to be in that union. However, <laughs> you can bless the individuals in the union and I think what a lot of Catholics are missing, and I was talking to a reader about this actually, is that blessings and prayers for other people or asking for God to bless other people kind of goes two ways. Like there's God blessing the person, and then there's the person responding to the blessing. And if you don't have those two parts, like the blessing is fine, but it's not efficacious unless they respond to it. And yeah, I think what Rome's saying is like, yeah, we can bless these people. They should respond to God's will in their life, which is that they leave the sinful relationship. Well, that's the subtext, it seems. Um, but the translation has been like Father James Martin, who is a not laicized, so I still have to call him father. But um, he's like, he's going around blessing gay couples. Meanwhile, in order to avoid confusion, conservative bishops in Africa, like Archbishop Schneider and that diocese, as well as a few others have like said, no priest should bless unions. No priest should even like, like this is going to cause confusion, which isn't not allowed by the document, I guess. Like you can do that. 
if you're a bishop, you're making a pastoral decision. But hmm. it's all very confusing. And there are a lot of Catholics on both sides of the issue who are very, very angry about it. No. And I've seen several people be like, this is bordering on heresy. And I'm like, it, it's really not. I don't think. I mean, I could be wrong. And that's that's kind of the sad part about it is that it's so confusing that I could be wrong about it. I think there's an excellent opportunity for catechesis, like pastors, bishops should say, hey, this is what we believe about gay marriage. And this is how we evangelize to those people. Right. That has to be frustrating. It is. Because um, I, I mean, coming from low church Protestantism, the pastor answers for the health of the church and the single church. And so, you know, if he's messing up, you just go talk to him and say, hey, could you <laughs> clarify next Sunday about this? But you can't do that with the Pope. Like, right. you, there, there's a there's a procedure about how you communicate with the Pope, and it goes through, me, through many hoops. And in some ways, that's protective and correct and quite good. Um, but in others, it's, I think, extremely difficult because resolutions are so, so slow to come to and yeah. Everything moves damages away. from miscommunication or uh, vague wording are almost immediate. Uh, that's, that's tough. Right. Well, and the liberal media has an agenda. I think the AP released a headline that was like, Pope Francis allows priests to less gay unions which is not at all what happened he said not the union but the couple yes um and so that's confusing people who are choosing who first read the news and then read the document or never even make it to reading the document i think there's a fair number of people who are trying to actually read the document um everybody most people i've talked to have been like yeah i read it a few times <laughs> it's confusing still <laughs> like yep <laughs> yeah and i worry that this also speaks to in the west generally our theological uh illiteracy uh mm -hmm. or we, we don't know how the church operates uh we don't actually know what the church holds to be true and what's what's new and what's the same um uh, and I mean, this is especially bad in media where there are so many agnostics or, you know, cultural Christians who have no idea uh, about the church in any meaningful way. Um, well, and to kind of build off of that, like, I think what the document is doing and what makes it confusing is that it's making a lot of very small theological distinctions, right? It's like, here's this category, we're breaking it into all of these categories, and these categories have different meanings. And, and that's confusing to the average person who does not have theological training and is not used to categorizing everything very precisely. Um, and to them, like they are putting things in big buckets and the document does not help people put things into buckets. It is like, no, actually the bucket is actually all these tiny little compartments, each with different varying levels of importance and, you know, 
uh, yeah and so it it ends up being confusing because i think not enough people are used to making theological distinction and thinking about things from a very philosophical perspective rather than from you know a generalized perspective and that's especially true in the media but even just among you know your average catholic or non-catholic <laughs> some people i've talked to who've been frustrated about it aren't catholic at all they're just yeah and i i, I get this way about supreme court decisions too uh where there just needs to be a yes or a no <laughs> can we or can we not yes or no and then the church in this case um or justice roberts <laughs> goes <laughs> off on this jesuitical tangent and <laughs> no just answer the question please like we do not have time to spend a week parsing through this this stuff just well, give us a straight you. answer you just did <laughs> yeah well nuts because we would all rather be getting ready for Christmas instead of railing against, um, well, Jesuits. Maybe that's just the answer every time. I don't know. Grumble, grumble. Uh, but <laughs> moving on, uh, more court rulings, more, more high court stuff. Uh, Colorado rules to remove Trump from the ballot. Your initial reaction? I mean, I didn't not expect it like I feel like it's been something they've been talking about for a few months now and it seems like something they would do it's definitely an overstep of their power it's going to go to the Supreme Court I think and just you know be blown out of the water <laughs> so yeah I don't know I think you probably know more about this than I do I've been rather distracted this week with other things so yeah I mean it's just absurd it goes well beyond uh, whatever precedent exists that they were supposed to be calling upon uh, to make this decision. And so if we're looking at it in a purely political sense, uh, which I think it, the move was made in a political sense, it is again, one of these rulings that is made to force the US Supreme Court to look partisan in nature when it comes in and I mean, we say it all the time, but the left legal, the left's legal apparatus and its reporting apparatus um, work very closely together. Uh, I don't think that's conspiratorial to say. I think we see this, especially with recent ProPublica reporting about Supreme Court justices um, and a lot of smears on conservative justices when the left-wing ones are doing far worse things. Uh, but they want to force the U.S. Supreme Court to look partisan and kind of bail Trump out. And so you're going to see a lot of headlines about U.S. Supreme Court um, returns Trump to the ballot, you know, overturns democracy, whatever. Uh, and it, there's going to be a lot of pressure applied to the Trump appointees, especially. So we're talking about uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and um, oh, help me out here. Um, Amy Coney Barrett? Yeah, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, so those three. And there's going to be a pressure campaign to get each of them to step back um, 
recuse themselves from this case uh, yeah. because if it's a split 3-3 at that point, the lower court's ruling holds. Uh, so you're going to see intimidation campaigns. You're going to see all that sort of uh, lobbying, one could call it. Um, so it's horrible. It's a horrible decision incorrectly made. The Supreme Court is well within its bounds to smack it down and say, how dare you, <laughs> Colorado? Uh, but you're not going to see that coming from most left-wing mainstream outlets. Uh, it's going to be, you know, Trump's, Trump's court, Trump's appointees um, doing partisan hackery, that sort of language you'll see again and again so gird your loins for that um speaking of loins and breasts new york chick-fil-a what's uh, what's going on there new york is, is getting after uh, chick-fil-a and trying to kick it out of the state is that what i'm uh no not quite um so chick-fil-a as everybody is aware is not open on sunday has not been open on Sunday since I think the owner, or not the owner, the founder, hasn't had restaurants open since like 1949. It's a longstanding tradition. The purpose, of course, is to give employees a day off, but also, you know, to respect the Sabbath or Sunday. And um, so a New York, uh, I guess they're called assemblymen, New York assemblymen, I think Tony Simo, um, just introduced a bill that would force any restaurants that are on like highways or like you know highway rest stops or in airports um so in public transportation spaces to stay open seven days a week which of course includes nine chick-fil-a joints um and lest you think that this is just like accidental simone actually like said something about it um and the New York Post actually made a really interesting connection between, uh, I guess, a few years ago, Chick-fil-A came under fire for donating to like anti-LGBTQ organizations. And um, yeah, so he essentially was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of singling them out because they're the only people who are closed on Sundays in these places and they shouldn't be. Um, Honestly, if Chick-fil-A challenges them on it, and I think that they should, even though it's kind of petty, they should challenge New York on it if it passes, only because like it's a it's a cultural battle to like de-Christianize little things. Like it's a Christian practice not to have, you know, your store open on Sunday and to force them to do that again. I mean, it's an easy case for any court, or it should be. Like, this is religious discrimination. This is a practice the company's had for religious reasons. Like, <laughs> not constitutional, clearly. Um, but yeah, I know, I think they, they should definitely challenge it if it passes. That being said, it just got introduced. So will it pass? Who knows? It's kind of petty. But the culture war is fun in petty battlefields, so. Yeah, it certainly is. And I see this as one making... It New York as hostile as possible to these sorts of Christian, openly Christian businesses uh, through, you know, just advancing regulatory hoops that eventually the business says, 
either we capitulate entirely or you know we're just gonna leave either way this this um this politician gets to fundraise off of this from a bunch of, you know, progressives. And he's like, I'm taking the battle to, you know, anti-gay Chick-fil-A and give me all your money. And he <laughs> will do quite well. Uh, that's, that's the horrible thing about um, sort of representative government is that sometimes you represent a whole bunch of jerks uh, who are willing to donate to your campaign. Um, so... The guy's a schmuck, and I agree. I don't think this will go anywhere because it's just so egregious. That said, this is signaling to Chick-fil-A and similar businesses that we don't want you in our state uh, and that we will just make you more and more uncomfortable here until you either leave or give in and become like the rest of sort of agnostic culture or really progressive culture, because they don't just want people to be silent and serve chicken. They want people to praise progressive mores well, or mores. That's one on the paper. I just don't get, but it is mores. Uh, they want, you know, that rainbow outside in June, and they're going to come asking if you don't have a rainbow outside. And it is, it's tough, man. I. I sympathize so much with these businesses and that's why I really try to get into um, Christian businesses as much as possible to you know, give them what they can to make it worth their while to stick around um, because Chick-fil-A is doing quite well. It was like one of the number one grossing fast food restaurants last year. So it's like, it's not like this is hitting them hard. They're, they, they're serving a good product. They definitely have the cash to spend on monsoon or whatever. Well, right. And so this uh, New York politician is a bit like a cricket punching the foot of uh, a giant. I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, nine stores. What do we have? Like three, four thousand at least. Um, we can make these go away immediately. Uh, it's no big deal. Um, but it's, again, it's the government wanting to bend people to its will, not the people bending the government to their will. And that should be rejected always. Uh, now, speaking of other gay things, Harvard, uh, Claudine gay, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> couldn't help myself. We're kicked off of YouTube anyway, so it is what it is. Um, so Claudine gay continues, uh, to come under siege and for good reason uh, because it's been discovered that her doctoral thesis lifted whole sections and rewordings of uh, other people's work and that when harvard was investigating these things if you recall in the past couple weeks harvard said we did an investigation and we found yeah she missed a couple quotes but you know it's all good well i think it was uh Zach Kessel over at National Review uh, went and called each of these academics that Claudine Gay had uh, lifted sections and ideas from, and he found out that Harvard had never contacted these other academics uh, during their investigation. So 
they did not do anything sort uh, uh, or anything close to due diligence on their end uh, before absolving their president of uh, wrongdoing. Um, and instead ran with one academic who agreed to say, well, you know, sh she took some things, but I'm not too bothered with it. So they grabbed one guy who's going to play their game and then didn't bother to contact anyone else who all of whom were affected negatively by having their ideas taken, their sections taken. Um, and so we're seeing even in the New York Times, the Boston Globe has been really good on this, uh, calling out Claudine Gay each time some of these uh, revelations come out. But John McWhorter over in New York Times Opinion, uh, who's no right winger, wrote that, um, let me get the quote correct here, Claudine Gay should go, end quote. And so to have that splashed across the New York Times is huge. And I can't imagine that Harvard's um, board is feeling too good this morning about anything. Do you think that they would really actually get rid of her though? Because I feel like at this point, they've they've almost made it a hill that they're willing to die on. I don't know what else. Yeah, for the progressive crowd, which Claudine is coming from, uh, to give in is to give in to right-wing agitators uh, right. in their view. So it may be that there's always a news dump on Friday evenings or like Christmas day. So it might be that she finds some new cush position somewhere over the Christmas uh, vacation time. Uh, it's like, oh, you know, it's just too good to pass up. So I'll have to step away from Harvard, that sort of thing. They can never say we're firing her for, you know, uh, this gross plagiarism, it'll be an opportunity too good to pass up came along. I mean, it's probably true. Like there might be some Silicon Valley outfit looking for a DEI coordinator who's paying $50 million a year or something. <laughs> and that's the kind of sucky thing about dealing with these progressives is they, they never really suffer all that much for their misdeeds. They just get recycled back into the progressive machine. Uh, of course, I would say that's sometimes true on the right as well, <laughs> but uh, those on the left are getting paid a lot more after being accused of uh, misdeeds. And so, yeah, I I hope for Harvard's sake, they do resolve this where they say, no, this is simply unacceptable. She has to go. We expect the best of our academics and those who lead this fine institution, but I think we all know that's not gonna happen. Um, and so if Harvard pursues that route, then they deserve all of the condemnation uh, that's coming their way and to slide down the rankings, uh, whatever those might be. Uh, and I have to imagine that Yale is just doing a happy jig every day. They're just like, no, we're number one, we're number one. <laughs> This is doing so much damage to Harvard. Uh, of course, people are still going to apply there. It's one of the best, thought to be one of the best schools. And as far as connections and the alumni network, it is still tops. But, um, you know, 
Harvard kind of sucks right now and they deserve uh, the pain that comes with that. So sorry, y'all did it to yourselves. You should have investigated <laughs> your president uh, before, <laughs> before making her so. Um, but enough grim and dark stuff. You recommend Paul Kenger's upcoming It's a Wonderful Film piece. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so he pretty much makes the argument that the best Christmas movie and perhaps the best movie of all time is um, It's a Wonderful Life, um, which I actually kind of agree with. I, it's a fantastic film. He makes the point that it wasn't written or directed for um, wasn't written and directed for like, you know, the critics who were apparently fairly negative towards it. Like there's some really, really uh, rough quotes from like the New Yorker and uh, the New Republic, I think that he cites that like, wow, they really didn't like this film, but apparently um, it's director whose name I'm blanking on right now. It's Fred something. I don't remember. Anyway, um, he made the argument that like this is for the everyday American, which is probably why it did so well. And you know, it's just a fantastic movie about Christmas spirit and what it means to, you know, celebrate and fight tough times. And what I love about uh, Christmas media in general is that it's self-referential -re uh, and that there's a sort of canon to it. Uh, where people talk about the great books as being this sort of monolith of authors in different times and places all talking with one another. It's this ongoing conversation of high literature. Well, I think the Christmas great books, great films, great media uh, is not so much for the authors as it is for the public, where there's a lot of Dickens in It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. And where it's a, Christmas is a time of reflection, focusing on the family of, I mean, the ultimate family that we are part of, of course, um, the body of Christ. Um, it's just fabulous to get outside of ourselves a little bit. And I think that's what It's a Wonderful Life accomplishes so well, is that there are a lot of broken situations. We think of, you know, past media, especially pre-1960s, as being um, sanitized. But the characters of It's a Wonderful Life do have real issues. I mean, there's there's suicide, there's uh, self-loathing, there's greed and all these other components there. And marriage and finances and relationships and Right. It's it's extremely real. And it's real in a way that a lot of modern media kind of invents problems or absurd scenarios, um, especially if it fits <laughs> progressive views. Uh, this one, I think, has continued because it speaks to us and will continue to do so. And it's also part of people growing up and, you know, threading uh, needles through popcorn and doing that with family and that it's it's part of our traditions uh as much as a tradition itself so yeah definitely keep keep an eye out for uh paul's piece there um 
always a movie to go back to. I mean, it's just great. I also like Mickey's Christmas Carol. I think that's the best Christmas Carol because it's about 30 minutes long, beautifully animated, and Scrooge McDuck is just the, he's the man. Uh, <laughs> I love it so much. I've seen, that, yeah. I've seen a lot of renditions of A Christmas Carol. The Muppets is a, it's a classic. It, that's a good one too. That's a really good one too. Yeah. What is that? Uh, Michael Caine in that one? Thank Maybe. you, Scrooge. Yeah. yeah. Awesome stuff. I mean, it might not be the sort of art that the New Yorker likes, but the New Yorker, I don't think any of those people have families or love anyone anyway. So it's <laughs> just a bunch of crouches. They're, they're the Scrooges of, um, of long form writing. Um, hot take, hot take coming out, being served. Uh, as for me, I'd have to recommend Melissa McKenzie's um, When White People Start Believing Critical Race Theory. It's one of those pieces that I think American Spectator is one of the best at publishing in that we're not afraid of publishing race criticism, but in the same way, it's not the crank or kind of uncomfortably uh, aggressive sort that some publications might have, uh, but where Melissa's asking very real question of what happens when the racial majority really starts feeling like the minority in its country and like it is, it is to blame or is being blamed for every problem in society. And that when we talk about developing community, usually when I come in, in the morning. I don't start my day by saying, Aubrey, everything that happened yesterday and everything that happens today that is bad, your fault. And historically, also your fault. <laughs> and looking forward, probably your fault too. It kind of makes life <laughs> unpleasant, especially for Aubrey. And she could be forgiven for when, um, when we meet for the next gala, slapping me across the face because it's just <laughs> not true. And it sucks when you're the one who's getting blamed for everything, no matter what you do. Uh, so I'd recommend checking out Melissa. It's Melissa at her best, uh, popping off on something that um, she knows well, and it's a deep concern of hers and one she's obviously thought about for a long time. Uh, so highly recommend that. Now, our final media points. Dr. Seuss's How the, Grin uh, How the Grinch, or The Grinch, Who Stole Christmas. Um, could you tell us about why that's your pick? Yes, I think it's one of the best like secular Christmas um, books out there. It's just, it's an excellent and wonderful story. Um, and... Yeah, I really appreciate it. What is your favorite part of that 
because there are so many memorable scenes where you know the you know here's here's uh the grinch lashing max the dog with his reindeer horns uh down the mountainside and of course max is just sinking straight into the snow and then has to run ahead and the ending of it is my favorite with the like huge sleigh not not when he comes back when, but when he's trying to get away and is like right before his heart starts expanding the three sizes or whatever it does there's like this moment where like max is trying desperately to drag this enormous sleigh of christmas goods away and it's i find it really really funny because it's just so absurd which dr seuss is just fantastic at the absurd and so yes i mean literally fantastic uh we use that word a lot but it's true uh there are fantastic elements of his work and i again i'm an english major this and i apologize to everyone listening uh but i can't help but think of the scene in pilgrim's progress when he is trying to uh take the sleigh away with all of these goods right and if in pilgrim's progress of course the giant uh, burden that Pilgrim carries are his sins that he eventually leaves um, the, at the tomb. Uh, but one can see that too, where of course these are stolen goods, not quite the same, but uh, where he is burdened by them until the moment where the heart does grow and he hears the song and he's like, ha ha, I understand, I finally understand. Uh, his eyes were opened, the Grinch, this green fellow. And um, then he runs them back into town for people who do not need the gifts themselves, but are grateful for this sort of um, morning of Christmas and its uh, themes of redemption and all that. So I agree. It's a, it's a beautiful yeah. bit of writing. I love the reference to the roast beast. I think it's such a a masculine term for a big chunk of meat. <laughs> it's ghost beast. Uh, say it to yourself five times. And if anyone looks at you weird, blame me. Uh, <laughs> as for me, I'd say the Berenstein Bears Christmas tree. And it, it's kind of similar in a lot of ways where the Berenstein Bears, Brother Bear, Sister Bear, and uh, Papa Bear go out looking for the biggest tree, the best tree. and. Papa Bear, of course, um, his his ego gets away with him, away from him, and he has to find the very best one. But they keep finding these bigger and bestest trees. But each time they look at the tree, and there are already critters living in it, or someone attached to it in some way, where they say, you know, maybe there's an even better tree out there. And so, yeah, is there some green? um undertones to it i suppose but at the same time it's saying hey christmas is about generosity uh towards our fellow creatures our fellow man um and there are things that we might do the rest of the year where we need to take a second and say you know that's not for me today i i can go buy a tree i can show extra grace extra charity uh, and then, of course, when they return to their own treehouse, because the bears live in a tree, not sure. The dimensions inside and outside never made sense to me. But 
uh, they find that all of the forest creatures whose trees they decided not to chop down have come together and actually decorated the treehouse uh, itself. And of course, there is the, I believe it's an eagle. So the American in me is oh, beautiful. The <laughs> eagle drops this gorgeous star on top. And then they all look and better than even that star on top of the house is the star of Bethlehem over the tree uh, that outshines anything else in the landscape. And it's just, oh, almost getting me teary-eyed. I just... Children's literature has Christmas down. Really does. I mean, golly. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, is there anything else uh, before we wish everyone a very Merry Christmas? I don't think so. Well, then let it be said. Um, God bless your Christmases. Uh, may you have safe travels. And uh, we'll uh, be back with you next week. Merry Christmas. God bless here at the American Spectator PM podcast. Thank you.